Well, good Lord's Day to you all. If you would take out your Bibles and open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19 will be our text this Lord's Day morning. It's been an absolute joy as it is consistently to gather with you all and to sing to the Lord, to pray to the Lord to hear his word read, to actually respond with the words of scripture in confession, and now to turn to God's word again, hearing his word read and seeing Christ in all of scripture. Deuteronomy 19, and I would like to read the entire chapter. Deuteronomy 19, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 21, and because this is the word of God, you are the people of God, and it is the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand? I'll add another phrase to that over time. Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 21, Moses writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God, these words... When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide them into three parts, that is, divide the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who, by fleeing there, may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head, the head rather slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live Notice, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers... Provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three. Lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of this city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Verse 14 You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in any, rather, in connection with any offense that he has committed. 
Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. There were certain characteristics my mom drilled into us growing up as young boys. One of these characteristics was the priority of taking up for the vulnerable and the bullied. Any of you have parents that drilled that into you? In fact, I knew, though mom did not condone fighting. She didn't condone fighting. She said this time and time and time again. I did know this. I did know that if I had ever gotten into a fight because I was taking up for someone who was more vulnerable than I was or for someone who was being bullied, I knew that while I had to accept the consequences, when I had gotten home, there would not be further consequences. However, had I picked a fight, that was something altogether different, right? But taking care of the vulnerable was just a part of what mom instructed us to do as young boys growing up together. I grew up with my younger brother. My older stepbrother was already out of the house when mom married pops. Taking care of the vulnerable was just a part of it. At least we were taught to do so. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 21, God offers instruction to Israel in how to justly care for the more vulnerable in their midst. We could say it this way. God instructs Israel in this text in how to care for the innocent, those who are innocent of a particular alleged crime or a particular activity under consideration. And so God, you find in Deuteronomy chapter 19, the God who had redeemed Israel out of Egypt by his righteous right arm, this God was just And Israel's laws were to reflect his justice. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this text together, this text about God's justice and the way in which God had instructed Israel to take care of the vulnerable and the innocent in their midst. And we're going to unpack this text in two stages. And by the way, if you're taking notes, these are two stages that we've used throughout Deuteronomy. And they're two stages that I find especially helpful as we're interpreting our Old Testaments in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. First of all, we're going to look together at Deuteronomy 19, then. Deuteronomy 19, Then, and we're going to ask questions about how it is that God is instructing Israel in our text 
And that is Israel, that is the second generation of Israelites standing on the plains of Moab just before they enter the land of Canaan. How is it that God instructs Israel back then to walk in and reflect his justice? Now, a word of warning here. The front porch is going to be a little larger than the house, probably. Because there is so much in this text so much in this text. And I think in order to get to what we want to get to, that is seeing Deuteronomy 19 through the lens of Jesus Christ, we have to understand what it was that God was instructing Israel to do in their context, okay? So Deuteronomy 19, then, and we'll have three subpoints probably under Deuteronomy 19, then. Secondly, we're going to look together at Deuteronomy when? Now, Deuteronomy, now, because our interest is not simply reading Deuteronomy 19 and determining what it, mean, what it meant, rather, back then, second generation of Israelites on the plains of Moab. We're not just interested in a kind of history lesson, as much as I like history. We're actually interested in seeing the ways God is instructing us as God's people today in the 21st century. And so, once we lay this foundation of Deuteronomy, then we'll turn to looking at Deuteronomy Now, how is it that we interpret this text through the lens of Jesus Christ? And how is it that God is instructing us as Christians in the 21st century right here in Powell, Tennessee through the 19th chapter of Deuteronomy? Okay, so that's the roadmap for us this morning. Deuteronomy then and Deuteronomy now. Let's begin with Deuteronomy then Notice in verses one through three where we begin to see a description, and this is really the first subpoint, a description of the first vulnerable person in the text. There are three vulnerable people. The first vulnerable, per- vulnerable person is the one who unintentionally takes the life of another. The one who unintentionally takes the life of another person. Look with me at verses one through three. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then verse three, you shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. Now, there's a parallel text, and you can jot this down. We're not going to turn there at any point during this sermon, but the parallel text is Numbers 35, and Numbers 35 gives us a great deal of detail about these cities. In fact, in Numbers 35, these cities are known as the cities of refuge, the cities of refuge. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 41 to 43, we learned about three cities, of refuge, that is. And these three cities back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 were east of the Jordan River. So there were three cities east of the Jordan River that were set apart and sanctioned as cities of refuge for the manslayer to flee to these cities. And then there were three cities west of the Jordan River that were sanctioned for the manslayer to flee to in the case of manslaughter or killing another person unintentionally. Now we've already hinted at, perhaps even stated a couple of times 
in brief form the purpose of these cities, but let me outline this briefly for you so that you understand exactly the role and the function these cities played in the life of ancient Israel. If a person unintentionally took the life of another person, that is to say, through some accident, this wasn't planned, this wasn't premeditated, in the case that's given in the text, and we'll look at that in just a moment, you know, someone's out in the woods and, and an accident happens with another person and the result of that accident is the other person loses his or her life. In that case, these cities were set apart for the purpose of allowing the one who unintentionally took the life of another person to flee to the cities or to flee to the nearest city. And in the example that Moses gives, he gives this example, by the way, in verses four, five, and six. In this example, a man swings an ax and the ax head flies off the handle. So it's no fault in the person. The fault, rather, is with the ax. Now, there are a number of things to consider here. Of course, death is the result of the fall. And so perhaps there's some degree of guilt in a fallen world, but this is unintentional. This is manslaughter. This isn't murder. The axe head flies off and it strikes the other person and the other person now is dead. So this manslayer intended no harm, did not intend to kill his neighbor. And yet, nevertheless, his neighbor is indeed dead. Now, in the ancient world, there was a person and the person is referred to in the text as the avenger of blood the avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood was, was someone, probably a nearest kin, near relative. This is debated from time to time among Old Testament scholars, but probably a kinsman. And this person was appointed or recognized to kind of stand for the honor of the family. Now, before this sounds too terribly barbaric, the avenger of blood actually served as a part of the judicial process. If we were to go on and read in detail here, even now, we'll go back and look at Numbers 35. The avenger of blood actually served as a part of this judicial process. If indeed the person was found guilty of murder, that murderer was handed over to the avenger of blood and the avenger of blood would oversee the execution. And so uh, this wasn't a kind of vigilante justice. This, this person served a purpose in ancient Israel to protect the honor of the family. But the manslayer, in the case of accidentally killing someone, the manslayer needed a place to go to. After all, when the family found out that this person had died, this family member had been killed in the forest through potentially an accident, but who knows? Before the avenger of blood arrived and could then take the life of this person or seize this person in order to take them back to the family for justice, as it were, perceived justice. Before that could happen, Moses says God in his kindness has provided these cities that are to be scattered throughout the land of Israel. Three to the east of the Jordan, three to the west of the Jordan. And the nearest city was the one to which the manslayer was to flee. So there were six total. Now I want you to notice verses eight and nine because there are three more spoken about here in verses 8 and 9, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers, that is, if Israel inherits all of the land, every bit of it, as God had promised, verse 9, 
provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these three. So what's the point? The point is, Israel, if you obey as I have commanded you, if you love me with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, as God instructed in Deuteronomy chapter six, and if you walk in my ways, I'm going to enlarge your territory and you're gonna need more cities because I don't want you to have to travel too far to get to a city of refuge. Now, there's no record of Israel actually needing to do this. Why? Well, there's no record of them actually obeying. They're a lot like us, right? In this way, we find ourselves consistently in the text of Scripture, sometimes in a less than flattering way. And so this enlarging of the territory of Israel, this granting of the full inheritance to Israel, really was dependent on Israel's obedience. And notice here again that obeying God's law was not merely external. Don't miss that. We find this time and time and time again in Deuteronomy. Obedience to God's law was actually, first and foremost, a matter of the heart. It was a matter of internal affections being oriented to a God in love. And so this is a part of obeying God's law. So technically, there could have been nine cities of refuge, but there, there never was city number seven or number eight and number nine, only six. These cities were not to protect murderers. They were not to protect murderers. Notice verses 11, 12, and 13. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him and attacks him, strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him there, rather from there, and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Now, presumably, there was a process here but Moses is just summarizing. And then verse 19, your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Okay, so that's kind of the first vulnerable person. And that's the majority really of our text. The the first vulnerable person, the first innocent person is the person who unintentionally, through no direct fault of their own, takes the life of another person, the manslayer. There's a second vulnerable person as we unpack Deuteronomy 19 then, and this second vulnerable person is found in verse 14. This is the landowner who is robbed of a portion of his inheritance. The landowner who actually loses a portion of his inheritance because of the selfishness and the theft of a neighbor. And this is quite brief. Look, at, look with me at verse 14. You shall move, rather not move, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And that's all we have here in the text concerning this incident and this person who is vulnerable to his or her neighbors. You see, your property was delineated not through fences, not through gates, but through these stones These landmarks and these stones oftentimes were, at least it's been surmised, large enough that it would take more than one person to move the stone. So these are heavy stones. And on the stone, there was an inscription. The inscription actually told you who the owner of the property was. 
And here, Moses, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, says, look, in the middle of the night, if you want a little larger property, don't walk over with your friends and move the stone. Don't try to seize the inheritance that God is giving to your neighbor. Consider your neighbor. Again, the the issue here is, is a concern for the vulnerable, a concern that among God's people, God's people are not taking advantage of one another. That's the primary concern. Moving a landmark actually is listed in the curses that we will find in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 17. This is a serious crime. And I don't think it's an accident actually that it's listed here alongside murder. Because keep in mind, we're not just talking about land. We're talking about the inheritance that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now is extending to the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites. Well, in addition to the manslayer and the landowner robbed of his inheritance, we find this third vulnerable person. And this third person is the falsely accused. The falsely accused. Look down with me at verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. We've seen this before. If you've been with us in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17 actually has this. But I want you to note here that to establish an offense in Israelite court one must obtain more than a single witness. Now, what this doesn't mean, I don't think. I don't think it means you have to have more than one eyewitness to the crime. That would have been quite rare, by the way. Rather than demanding more than one eyewitness to the crime, I think what this demands rather is more than one witness to the circumstances of the crime. That is, there's more than one person that can get together, interview, and inspect the evidence, and find out, and and together affirm that we believe, as we are people in good standing, in honesty, we believe this person is guilty of said crime. It's broad here. There's a great deal we don't have. But what we do know is if the crime under consideration was simply one man's word against another man's word, that was insufficient. You had to have more than this to create a case, as it were. So God's people were to live in God's land in such a way that reflected God's just character. And he cared for vulnerable people. This, by the way, is the definition of a just nation. A just nation is one that punishes the guilty, and protects the innocent? If a nation begins to protect the guilty and punish the innocent, it is by definition an unjust nation. I don't want to chase that too far this morning, but I think it has applications for us as we think about things. God's law does not withhold punishment from criminal activity and from criminals. 
And God's law consistently takes care of those who are vulnerable and innocent with regard to the activity under consideration. Now Moses does explicitly turn to the problem of false witnesses. Now we're still on Deuteronomy then, and we're still on this third category of vulnerable person, the falsely accused. In verses 16 through 21, he just unpacks this a bit more. When a witness is suspected of malice or dishonesty, that witness is to be tried in the presence of the priests and the judges. And if the witness is proven to be a false witness, if the witness is found to be someone who is falsely testifying against his neighbor, he was to receive the punishment he sought for his neighbor. So what that means is if there was a false witness who was falsely testifying against someone claiming that someone actually had committed murder, and that witness was found out to be false, what would that false witness receive? The death penalty. You see? This, I would submit to you, tends to deter false witnesses. So again, God's people were to live in God's land in such a way that reflected God's just character. We find this time and time and time Again, now look with me at verse 21. And we're almost finished now with Deuteronomy then. Verse 21, your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This passage, alongside others in Scripture, just like it is commonly referred to as the lex talionis or the law of retaliation. Now, there are two sides of this coin and I don't want you to miss these two sides because these two sides are going to really come to blossom in Deuteronomy now through the work of Jesus Christ. But there are two sides to this coin, to this law. On the one hand, God warns against compromise by refusing to punish the guilty. So in other words, God is warning his people to actually be willing to punish those who are guilty. Don't pity. We found this warning actually back in chapter 13. We found it also in chapter 17. It's found with reference to false prophets. It's found with reference to the inhabitants of Canaan who are under God's judgment. Do not pity them. And here it's found. Do not pity the person who is actually guilty of the crime. Stand with confidence in the justice of God. That's what he's exhorting his people to do. That's a part of this, a part of the lex talionis. But there's another part of this, another side of the coin that really does undergird all of Deuteronomy 19. And this is where you've got to see it. If you don't see this, what Jesus says in Matthew 5 about this text will make no sense to you. If you don't see this, what Jesus does in Matthew 5 is more or less contradict and correct God's law. Which, by the way, he doesn't. So here's the other side of this coin. Human nature tends to seek retaliation that actually isn't commensurate with the crime. It goes too far. 
Deuteronomy 19 began with the cities of refuge. Now conceptualize this with me. Began with the cities of refuge. You have an accident that happens in the woods. And the tendency is for the family that lost a loved one because of an accident to want to respond to manslaughter with murder. You see? That would be unjust. That's an over-retaliation. And so part of this lex talionis is a warning. It's a warning that we not seek revenge. That is to say, if someone knocks out his right tooth, the portion of his teeth, don't take out all of his teeth. It's just one tooth for one tooth, you see? One hand for one hand. One foot for one foot. That's the point of the law. The point of the law is actually to put a ceiling on retaliation. That's the point of Deuteronomy 19. And yet it's been quoted so many times in the hands of people who aren't reading this in its context that the word of God actually does encourage retaliation. It's not the case. Indeed, God's justice must be manifested among his people, and in particular, in this case, Deuteronomy, then among his just nation, the people of Israel. But this was a cap. Someone accidentally took the life of another, don't murder them. They aren't deserving of death. So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that under Deuteronomy 19 now. So let's turn there. What does all this have to do with us? Now, that's a lot, I know. I had, I had toyed with how to do this, and I thought, well, should it be a couple of sermons? And then you think, well, if it's a couple of sermons, you have to divide up the primary point. So we decided to take it all together. We've got a foundation now. God is calling his people to protect the vulnerable, to put a ceiling on retaliation, to reflect God's justice, not to seek personal revenge, but to trust the Lord. How about now? We aren't second-generation Israelites on the plains of Moab. We are Christians. What does it look like to take Deuteronomy 19 and to see it through the lens of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I want to offer you two ways Deuteronomy 19 actually instructs us today as followers of Jesus, okay? So two ways Deuteronomy 19 instructs us today or instructs us now, first, first, this text invites us to find justice and refuge in Christ alone. Now we're going to unpack this. This text instructs us to find justice and refuge in Christ alone. I want you to consider for just a moment the concept of justice. Justice demands two things. On the one hand, it demands punishment commensurate with the crime committed, right? Justice demands that. You've got to have punishment that is commensurate with the crime committed. But on the other hand, there's another aspect of justice that oftentimes gets forgotten. And this other aspect of justice is it demands restoration of what was lost as a result of the crime. Justice demands punishment commensurate with the crime and restoration of what was lost as a result of the crime. So, 
when a life is taken, for whatever reason, punishment may be given. What about restoration? What God's law could not do was restore. It couldn't restore. What our laws cannot do, think about it as a nation. What happens? Someone loses his life or someone loses her life, whether it's accidentally or intentionally. What our laws can do potentially is offer a punishment commensurate with the crime, but what our laws cannot do is give life back to that family. Laws can't do that. Now we're going to keep going. There's more here as we're considering Christ. Additionally, there's a lot here actually. In Numbers 35, now remember, we're not turning there. I don't say that for you, you know that. I say that for me, trying to convince myself not to turn there. In Numbers 35, we learn that in the case of manslaughter, that is unintentionally taking the life of another, the punishment for the manslayer, this was a kind of punishment, by the way, included having to live in the city of refuge for a season. So they had to flee to the city of refuge. And we find out the manslayer had to stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Now consider that for just a moment. What's the connection? In some way, when the merely human high priest died, it was viewed as a kind of atonement or covering for the taking of someone's life. So when the high priest died, the manslayer was free to go. Could go back home. You can do this without me. Where does all of this point us? It points us to Christ, doesn't it? How? Well, back to those two concepts. In Christ, we find true justice. That is, on the cross, God the Son incarnate bore a punishment commensurate with our crimes against God. The infinite Son of God incarnate bore an infinite price for sins committed against an infinite God, you see? So he took the punishment. That's part of the justice concept. Additionally, through his incarnation, death, resurrection, and promised future return, Jesus Christ offers complete restoration regarding all that sin has taken from us. That's justice. You see, and this is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans, what the law could not do weakened by the flesh, God did in sending his son in the likeness of human flesh. You see, the law couldn't do it. Christ did it, namely fulfilled God's justice, bearing our punishment for our sins and offering complete restoration by means of his resurrection, ascension, and promised future return. We can keep going with this, by the way. As I considered this this week, we are, as sinners, we are both vulnerable, that is, afflicted by sin, and guilty. That is, we commit sin. 
So we're afflicted by sin and we're guilty of sin. And because of the presence of sin, vulnerable people are guilty. And guilty people are vulnerable. You see, on the cross, what Christ does is he protects the vulnerable and he punishes the guilty. But he does so in his own person by taking on our sins. Okay, that's part of it. Now, the second aspect we mentioned a moment ago, how this text points us to Christ. In Christ, we find true refuge. The cities of refuge to function for a season. They can help for a little while. But Christ, you see, is the final high priest whose death doesn't merely cover unintentionally taking the life of another, but actually covers all sins once and for all. And so we're set free. How? Through the death of the high priest. All of this is embedded in God's law. And this is why early Christians couldn't help, as they're reading through their Old Testaments, they couldn't help saying, oh, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So cities of refuge, laws about landmarks, laws about false witnesses, all of these things lead us invariably to the fulfillment of all of God's promises Jesus Christ, who lived in perfect obedience to God, who died in our place and for our sins, who was buried and who was raised from the dead in glorious power on the third day. So I encourage you this morning, don't leave here without embracing Jesus Christ, where God's justice actually is satisfied on your behalf, if indeed you trust in him. And if that's where you are, as you exit this morning, take a left as you exit the main worship center. And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called Crossroads. And there will be a pastor in that room ready to talk with you about what it means to serve and love and follow Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 19. Secondly, I told you we were gonna do two things here with regard to Deuteronomy now. Secondly, and we'll wrap up with this, Deuteronomy 19 instructs us to lay down our rights rather than seek revenge. Let me say that again. Deuteronomy 19 instructs us to lay down our rights rather than seek revenge personally. I want you to consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But, many of you know this, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, right? If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, what Jesus is not doing is contradicting God's law. He's already told us that earlier in Matthew 5. He's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he begins to explain the law, expound the law, interpret the law. So what is he doing here? He's kind of offering a mini sermon on this text, Deuteronomy 19. And he says, look, this is what the text says. Here's what it means for you as you follow me. The point 
of Deuteronomy 19 was indeed to limit human retaliation and personal revenge. Now, should nations punish criminals who are found guilty? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely they should. There's also danger, by the way, in in taking the instruction of Jesus Christ to his disciples and, and applying them at the national level. There are some things that can inform, but it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Nations absolutely should punish criminals and punish the guilty. They should protect the innocent and the vulnerable. However, the church is to be characterized as a people ready to sacrifice their own rights out of love and forgiveness because they know Jesus Christ who sacrificed on their behalf, not because they were worthy, but because of his love. As I thought about that this week, I thought, you know, ever since the fall, our disposition really has been not to sacrifice for other people, but to cling to what we perceive to be our own possession and our own rights. That's, that's been our disposition ever since the fall, to take from others, to insist from others. And so, you know, an example of this may be something simple like driving down 75, You never do this, but I do. Driving down 75, I get in the car and I'm thinking, you know, we're going to follow Jesus. I'm going to honor him as I drive this car. And I do, I think that. And then, a a dear neighbor, and I don't mean neighbor in the sense of geographical proximity, okay? Okay. Someone decides, you know, to pull in front of me. Not just to pull in front of me, but for whatever reason, to decide, even though there's no one in front of them, that the break is necessary at this point. And though the speed limit is posted, for whatever reason, that sign doesn't mean a thing. They want to subtract from the speed limit and be safe. And, And in that moment, you know, I want to insist on my rights and I want to instruct and instruction you know may look something like well you know eye for an eye right you never do this I know you never think about this this has never happened to any of you and you're thinking why am I at this church I need a better pastor than this how is he going to show me Jesus well this is how perhaps But what goes through my mind in that moment, oftentimes, at least not initially, is it is not. Perry, you've been called to die. Yeah, you have rights. What an opportunity to give them up. Maybe even in the way you drive. Perhaps in the way you drive, Christ will or not be reflected. Will or will not be reflected, rather. This is the case, isn't it? It's oftentimes the case that we want to seek revenge and seek retaliation and make things right. And listen, the desire for justice is not intrinsically a bad desire, but because of the fall, it's broken. Because we're broken. I think 
These are instances where we're getting close to even seeing what the disposition of the Christian ought to be. I'll never forget a professor that I had at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we read Matthew chapter 5, and we read through the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, you know, one of the arguments against these kinds of expositions of God's word is that it would never work. You can't live this way. It's not practical. And then he looked at the class. I remember sitting in the class. He looked at us and he said, have you tried it? Have you considered that maybe Jesus means what he says? Maybe the path to life really is self-denial. Maybe the one who seeks to preserve or gain his life will in fact lose it. But the one who forfeits his life for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel will indeed find it. So Deuteronomy 19 really is not about encouraging revenge. It's about curbing it. And it's about pointing us to the fulfillment of justice. And by the way, we aren't the fulfillment of justice. Christ is. And so the apostle Paul was able to say in Romans 12, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For what does the Lord say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The 20th century German Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Challenging book. I want you to listen to how he explains what it means to follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He continues, it may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. May it be that the Lord in his kindness teaches us, not simply that we died when we came to know Jesus, though indeed we did, but that now we have the stewardship, as the Apostle Paul says, to die daily. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that's our desire. If we may be so bold, to die in Christ so that we might live in him. Forgive us, Father. Forgive me for ever seeking retaliation or revenge Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As heaven is higher than the earth, so your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Oh God, cleanse me of seeking retaliation and revenge. Cleanse me of a broken view of justice. Cleanse me of believing that justice ever begins and ends with me. And rather teach me to look to Christ, the embodiment of, of your justice and your mercy and to leave room for your wrath, entrusting every personal injury and hurt to your kindness and your mercy. And may it be, may it be, O Father, that as we learn to die, that others come to know the Savior who died for us. In his name we pray, amen.